Open your Bibles to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46 this morning. You know, there's a time and a place for surprises. I'm sure many of you have had a surprise birthday party somewhere along the way. That's always a treat. Just when you thought no one remembered your birthday, surprise, everyone remembered. But then there are surprises that we try to avoid, like when you take your car in for a little adjustment because there's a noise or something, and they surprise you with the news it's going to take a couple of days and uh, probably about $500. But reluctantly, you end up paying the bill and you get your car back and you're happy camper finally until... Surprise, there's that noise again, and it's all for nothing. Some surprises you just don't need in life. Judgment Day is no time for surprise. That's why Jesus gave us this teaching this morning. That's why we need to listen closely to what he says. If we do, Judgment Day will be like a birthday party for us. If we don't, it will make your car troubles look like a picnic. And there is your text, Matthew 25, verse 31, down to the end of that chapter. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick? or in prison and go to visit you. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Many will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needy clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He replied, I will tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This passage is um, not really a very easy passage to think about. But it tells us at least two great things. The first one is this. Jesus is coming to judge. Jesus is coming to judge. You know, there's several stages of grief which people go through as they deal with the death of someone they love or as they deal with the news that uh, they're badly sick and they're probably going to die too. And the first stage, the one we know the most about, is denial. With amazing persistence, 
we find within ourselves the ability to deny the facts, to convince ourselves that it just ain't so. Many of these days seem to live in a permanent state of denial in regard to Judgment Day. We just will not face the facts that there will be such a day. In our text, however, Jesus makes it crystal clear that one day he will return, and that will be Judgment Day. In the previous sections of Matthew, Jesus has been talking about his, his return. We've heard a lot about it. We learned uh, some of the signs that will accompany it. We learned that he will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. We learned something about what it means to be ready. We, we, we've learned about the possibility that it might be a while longer than we thought. And we've been challenged to be faithful with whatever the master's entrusted to us until he comes. And now we hear the final point of Jesus' discourse. When he returns, it will be judgment day. The end of opportunity, the day of reckoning. Jesus is coming to judge. Now the statements of these verses tell us uh, uh, several things about judgment day. First of all, we're, we're told about the, who's the judge. Jesus is the judge. These days we tend to focus on, 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 uh, on a Jesus uh, who is gentle and mild, who would never judge anyone. Here Jesus is not only called the Son of Man and the Good Shepherd, he's also called the King. And the scriptures clearly tell us that this one with those titles will come to judge. And Daniel 7 speaks of Jesus as the Son of Man. And that's not a title of humility in Daniel 7. It's a title of rule. Ezekiel 34 speaks of God coming to shepherd his people by making a separation between the good and and the bad, just like we read about in Judgment Day. And Isaiah 33 makes clear that the Lord, our King who saves us, is also our lawgiver and our judge. So, though John 3.17 says that historically Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, our text this morning goes on to make it clear that when he returns... He will come to judge. Because this judge is a sovereign king, his judgment looks different than judgment that we might find in our society. There will not be a, this will not be a time of investigation and negotiation and defense. The judge is omniscient. He already knows all the facts. He needs no presentation of the case. He knows it all. The judge is sovereign. There's no need for deliberation by others. He issues decrees. So this day of judgment is also a day of sentencing. Jesus is coming to judge and to bring justice. Another thing, another thing we're told something about here is about the accused in this judgment. This is God's ultimate court of justice. So the judgment includes everyone. Everyone. This is God's ultimate court of justice. Verse 32 says all the nations will be gathered before him. Verse 34 says that those entering the kingdom of God will be there. Verse 41 says that those cast into hell will be there. Verse 46 says that both the righteous and the wicked 
will hear their sentencing. God's judgment will be universal. Jesus is coming to judge and no one will escape. Notice too that all he All the accused will be divided into just two groups. He calls them the sheep and the goats or the the blessed and the cursed. This does not deny deny that there are degrees of blessing and degrees of cursing. uh, But there are only two categories. Those entering eternal life in God's kingdom and those cast into eternal damnation. When Jesus comes to judge, there's no neutral ground. And notice that this will be the final separation. Today we see such an intermingling of good and evil. The wicked and the godly dwell together, live in the same countries, live in the same cities, live in the same churches, the same homes. They sometimes seem indistinguishable from one another. But on that day there will be a clear separation based not on human pastoring but on the judgment of the king. That separation will be final, forever, without end. The stakes in this final judgment are high. There's eternal life, God's kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world, and there is eternal punishment, hellfire and total destruction prepared for the devil and his angels. Dear people, we can't afford to ignore this coming reality. We seem to have the ability to explain away anything we don't like. We can make good seem evil and evil seem good. We can deny that we're dying of cancer no matter what all the evidence says. We can act as if some tragedy never happened. But this great reality must not be explained away. Much as we might wish it would go away, we dare not refuse to face it. This teaching about the final judgment is not incidental. The scriptures speak of this often in lots of places. A couple of examples we read in 2 Corinthians 5. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The book of Hebrews in chapter 9 says it even more um, Pointedly, man is destined to die once, and after that, judgment. Jesus is coming, and he's coming to judge. So the obvious question then is, how should we, how should we live? Well, Jesus' answer is summarized in our second point. The second point says it's a, it's a bit uh, difficult to work through exactly what we make of, of, of what Jesus says here. But as, as I summarize it down, it, it comes to this. The merciful will receive mercy. The merciful receive, will receive mercy. Let me show you how I got here. Critics of the Bible will be quick to tell you that the Bible cannot be trusted because it contradicts itself. I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible contradicts itself. But I will readily agree that sometimes it seems to. And today we come to one of those passages. The Bible often says that we are saved not by our works, but by believing in Jesus. And yet this passage about the coming judgment seems to say, if you want to be saved, you better be doing big, 
be busy doing charity work, feeding the hungry and clothing the poor and providing housing for the homeless, etc. So what is Jesus teaching here? Does he contradict the gospel here? Here we're taught that the merciful will receive mercy. That is not a biblical contradiction. Well, so let's just start uh, working through this by reviewing how it is exactly that we're right with God. The proper term for being right with God is the term justified. That means to be declared righteous in the courts of heaven. That's who's right with God. This is a central truth in the Bible's teaching about salvation. It's a truth that the church almost lost for a while until it was renewed, revived by the, uh, the, the, the reformers, Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all those guys. Clearly, the Bible's teaching is that we're not considered righteous before God because of our good works, as if we might be able to earn or merit God's favor. If that were the only way of salvation, none of us would be saved. For we were all born sinners, and even on our best days, we still sin. But the Bible says we are declared right with God, justified, based not on our performance, but on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He lived the perfectly righteous life that we could never live, and the Father was pleased. He said so, this is my son in whom I'm pleased. Then he submitted to death on the cross, where his righteous life became the perfect sacrifice, the true Lamb of God, that pays for our sins, atones for us. And then on the third day, God raised him from the dead, proving his death was sufficient uh, 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 to pay for our sin. And now because Jesus has done all that was required for our salvation, God declares us righteous in Jesus, justified right before God when we believe in Jesus, when we admit that we're sinful and transfer our trust from ourselves to him and what he's done, relying on him rather than relying on our good works. That right standing before God is simply a free gift which we receive by believing and resting in Jesus. It's all God's mercy, all mercy. Now that understanding of the gospel is central to the Bible's message. It's true. You can rest your eternal soul on this. Nothing can save us but the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that salvation is a gift that we receive by faith. It's actually simple enough for a child to understand. It's all about Jesus. Trusting him, not ourselves. It's about receiving mercy, not earning wages. But sometimes we take that wonderful truth of God and twist it a little and uh, create what ends up being a different gospel if we're not careful. Perhaps the most common distortion we have in our day is people thinking that because we're saved by faith, because it's a gift, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. If we're saved by Jesus, regardless of what sin we've uh, uh, committed, well, then why not just keep on sinning? He doesn't care. 
It's a very old error. The Apostle Paul fought against this. We read about it in Romans 6, way back in the first century. People are saying, well, if when I sin, it brings God glory because it shows how great his grace is, I ought to sin more and more. Boy, we really see how gracious God is. But you see, this reduces faith then to empty words. Simply, if I make the decision to have faith, then it's all right. It doesn't matter what I do. Rather than the kind of believing that abandons my trust in myself and follows Jesus, no matter what the cost, because he is my only hope. He is the only way of salvation, so I will not turn away from him. If you slipped into that error, which we might have, this passage ought to correct you. Note that Jesus teaching about Judgment Day, in, in Jesus' teaching about Judgment Day, the basis for judgment is simple. Not what have you said. Not what form have you filled out at church. How have you treated Jesus? Jesus' judgment is not based on your claim of love for him or claim of having a desire to serve him, but based on your actions as we believe in him enough to love and serve him. That's not a radical idea. What we believe always drives our action. So if someone says there's a fire, we don't act unless we believe it. But if we do believe, we can't act fast enough. You cannot separate believing it from doing it. And sure enough, Jesus rebukes those. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you don't do what I said. We cannot separate our faith from acts of faith. So if it's all about Jesus, trusting him, Resting in him, being faithful to him. How would our faith ever be recognized? What would that look like? Well, in this passage, Jesus tells us. Again and again, he speaks of how he has been treated or mistreated. He says, I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I needed clothes. I was sick. I was in prison. But that baffled both the righteous and the wicked. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger? When did we ever see you needing clothes or a place to stay or sick or, 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 or in prison? But Jesus' answer was always the same. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, my brothers, you did not do for me. This is the same thing Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out preaching. He says, whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a drink of water. That's how you dealt with Jesus. This passage here has long been thought to um, promote philanthropy and 
charity in general, as if one could be saved on the day of judgment either by believing in Jesus who died on the cross for sins or by um, doing charity work for people in need. We have what God did, what Jesus did, or what I do, and either way, God will will recognize it. There's nothing wrong with charity work, but there are not two ways of salvation. There is only one, Jesus. The Bible's crystal clear, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. In this passage, Jesus just expands what it means to believe in him and rest in his mercy. It's not just empty words that we speak or sing in church about Jesus' amazing grace. It's believing and resting in Jesus alone, and that means extending grace and mercy to him by means of grace and mercy shown to those members of his body. On Judgment Day, the merciful who have demonstrated their love for Jesus by showing mercy, those merciful ones will receive mercy. This is not just speaking of loving one another on some emotional level. Jesus is calling us to give ourselves away to one another in time of need. That's what's in view on Judgment Day. Not one's theological prowess, not one's knowledge or status in the church, not our words, not our feelings, our intentions, but how did you love and trust Jesus by serving those in whom he dwells? God did not overstate the case when he had Paul write, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility Consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This morning I call you to serve one another. This is faith. Faith in action. The Apostle Paul understood that when he wrote in Galatians 5, verse 6. I quote, The only thing that counts is faith. It's not done yet. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. What we're called to do is not difficult. We're called to love Jesus. And how do we do that? We give food to his little ones, his brothers, his children when they're hungry, water when they're thirsty, hospitality when they're strangers, clothing when they're naked, etc. These are simple things, but they test the reality of our love for Jesus. It's easy to talk love. It's easy to talk commitment. It's easy to do religious things. They can all be neatly contained at certain times and places where they don't get in our way in life. But here we're called to live it out. And towards whom? Christ Jesus requires us to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, whom he called his brother. 
and sisters. In, in fact, close to that, whom he calls members of his body, his hands, his feet, his ears, his eyes. When they hurt, he hurts. When they're served, he is served. That's what Saul of Tarsus found out when he was out persecuting Christians. And then one day on the road to Damascus, he met face to face the risen, glorious Lord Jesus, who demanded of him this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oh, you, I was just persecuting this terrible Christian. Me, Jesus said. And this is so simple. Why would we ever have difficulty with this? Why would it ever be a problem to treat God's people with mercy and grace the way we would treat Jesus? Have you ever met any of God's people? It's easy when they're our friends, but what about the cantankerous ones? We're still called to be merciful as to Christ. Those who show mercy, those who show mercy will be shown mercy. And what about those who are so different from us, from another culture, another race, another a different values, people who talk funny, whose music is foreign to us? Those who show mercy to Jesus, people that are different from us, will be the recipients of mercy. And what about those who smell bad and look bad and don't have any class or socially beneath us, are uneducated and butcher good grammar, and are the antithesis of beautiful people that we love to admire? Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least, the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Those who show my mercy will receive my mercy on judgment day. Well, what about those Christians that have mixed up theology? It's easy to say that, well, the logical implication of your views will just take you completely away from the gospel into a total uh, no man's land where there's no truth to it. And it's easy then to reject that brother. But Jesus says that when we receive, when we receive that brother, we receive him. And when we cut off that brother, we cut Jesus off. Just because someone wears a label different than us, maybe it's dispensational or Arminian or charismatic or Baptist or Catholic or whatever, does not mean that we have no obligation to the person that is a child of God. Jesus says that those who show mercy to his little ones will receive mercy on judgment day. And what about those who are caught up in sinful, embarrassing situations? Their lives are not all together. They're often tangled in a mess. Folks, these are some of the people the most in need. Like the Samaritan woman. What a mess. But as you minister mercy to the hurting, you'll do it to Christ. This is the same truth that we hear when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we come to the table, you recall, we're called, told to discern Jesus' body lest we participate unworthily. What does that mean, to discern Jesus' body as we come to the table? 
It means that you cannot celebrate Jesus' body given for you on the cross while rejecting the body of Christ sitting next to you in the pew. You can't trash this part of the body and say, I love your body on the cross, Jesus. Jesus says, in as much as you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So on Judgment Day, those who have displayed the mercy of Jesus their Lord will receive his mercy. Come, you who are blessed of the Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, the kingdom prepared for you. There's a song that Steve Green sang years ago called Wounded Soldier, and I love this song. It's about ministering mercy to members of Christ's body who are messed up, who are wounded. It's the kind of care that God's people often need desperately in our day, care that extends real mercy. Let me just read the words. I've read this to you before, I'm sure. Let me just read it. Again, as we close. See all the wounded. Hear all their desperate cries for help. Pleading for shelter and for peace. Our comrades are suffering. Come, let us meet them at their need. Don't let a wounded soldier obeying their orders they fought on the front lines for our king entering the enemy strongholds and then week in from battle Satan crept in to steal their lives don't let the wounded soldier die come let us pour the oil Come, let us bind the hurt. Let's cover them with a blanket of Christ's love. Come, let us break the bread. Come, let us give them rest. Let's minister healing to them. Don't let another wounded soldier of Christ die. Jesus is coming to judge. On that day, those who have shown mercy to him by means of his broken children, they will receive mercy. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, dear Father, it's so easy for us to love people that are lovely and love us back. But even within the church, it's difficult sometimes, Lord. People can be so cantankerous. People can be so messed up. People can have such miserable faults and have done miserable things and have said miserable things. And Oh, Father, we just feel justified in cutting them off. Help us to understand, Lord, that from your perspective, when we cut off the least members of your body, we're cutting off you. Give us grace to love you 
and to serve you wherever we find you, in whomever we find you. In Jesus' name we pray.